you want to take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We just sang a song where the last stanza said, We believe that human eyes saw the resurrected Jesus ascend back up into the sky. I hope that when we sang that, we all were telling the truth that we really do believe that. There's a big question that comes up about that, that matter, though, and that is, why do we believe that? And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Why do I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? When he was raised from the dead, the Bible tells us that he promised that he would appear to some of the disciples. He made that promise, and he did that. We've already looked in Acts chapter 1. We'll look at it again right now. Uh, beginning with verse 1, he says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Okay? When you read that, we, we, as we noticed last night, there are... Uh, there was a period of time of about 40 days. I've got my math right tonight. It was seven weeks plus one day. How about that? Okay. So <clears throat> from P Passover to Pentecost, 50 days. And for about a 40 of those j days, Jesus made appearances to various disciples. And this passage tells us that he did it for two reasons. One of the reasons was he was, in verse 2 it says, giving commandments unto the apostles that he had chosen. The end of verse 3 says he spent some time during those appearances talking to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I'm just going to say to you, he talked to them about the church. The church was about to begin, and he's telling them things about how the church is supposed to be, speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And there's no telling what details he talked about there. And then later the Holy Spirit, he says, is, was going to guide them into all truth, tell them the things that he had not yet told them after he's gone. But he's talking to them about the church and about how things are supposed to be in the church. That's why the apostles knew those things and were able to write the New Testament for us and tell us what the Lord's church is supposed to be like. That was one of the reasons he was appearing to them. The other one we mentioned last night, which is that he was creating witnesses. Remember, witnessing in the Bible is not just saying what a great life God has given you and talking about all the wonderful things like that. Witnessing in the Bible was a very specific thing to where it is a person who is able to say, I saw Jesus alive after he was dead after he was crucified, after he died on the cross of Calvary, after he was buried in that tomb, after they found the grave empty three days later, I saw Jesus with my own eyes. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. I have talked to him. I have seen him. Those witnesses were able to say, I am an eyewitness 
I have seen him with my own eyes. That was the purpose of the appearances. And tonight we're going to talk about the witnesses. And out of all that we study in this, this week, there's a lot of good, good things. You're probably going to hear me say, though, this is the main one. There'll probably be another one, main one. But this is really, really important. Okay? The foundation of us being Christians is that Jesus was raised from the dead. I mean, that's, that's the foundation. You have to lay that before you start building any kind of religion on top of that. And the religion of Jesus Christ causes us, demands of us, to make decisions about our life. You young people, you're going to be making decisions about who you marry, where you live, and what kind of job you're going to have, and what kind of life you're going to have. Old people, we're still making those kind of decisions, right? I'll throw myself in there, okay? We're, it, it never ends. The, the religion of Jesus Christ makes you, demands that you make decisions, and much of the time, those decisions that you make are different than, than what you would have decided if you're not a Christian. In other words, you don't get to do things you really would like to do. And you're going to have to do things you really would prefer not to do. But you choose to stay away from the bad and do what he says is the right thing to do because he's been raised from the dead. And you believe he's been raised from the dead you know there's meaning to that. And my question to you is, how do you know? How do you know that? I mean, how do you know that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, a good answer would be, well, I read about it in the Bible. And if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, and, and though that, I mean, that's, that's an okay answer. But do you realize that people wrote the Bible? Okay. Now, I understand they're inspired by the Holy Ghost, but to somebody who doesn't know all that, have you ever heard anybody say, oh, the Bible's just been written by 40 men and all that? It was written by men. They were inspired by God, but it, they were written by men, and you have to trust that the men were inspired by God to write the Bible for us. So you're still down to the point to where we're down to witnesses, aren't we? Okay, let me explain what I'm trying to get here. Go to John chapter 20, okay? John chapter 20, everybody, you know, we have little children's songs about doubting Thomas. And I'm going to tell you, every time I look at this, that story gets bigger and bigger. It's not a kid's story. It's a grown-up story, okay? In John chapter 20, you read beginning with about verse, uh, about verse 12 or 13, somewhere around in there, that Jesus, after he's been raised from the dead, he appears to 10 of the disciples. Okay, remember Judas is gone, and Thomas, out of the 11 that were left over, Thomas is not there at that time. And so Jesus appears to them, talks to them, and you get to verse 24, and it says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. I don't know where Thomas was, but he wasn't with the ten others. And Jesus appears to the ten, so Thomas misses out on that appearance, on that visit from Jesus. In verse 25 it says, the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. 
So Thomas comes back from wherever he is. He's back with the 11. And the first thing they tell him is that Jesus showed up. Jesus appeared to us and, and showed himself to us. We have seen the Lord. Now, now it's obvious the meaning of he's alive. He's alive. He's been raised from the dead. And Thomas's answer to that is, except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and I put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side where the spear went in, I will not believe. Okay? So, the first opportunity Thomas has to believe is because of witnesses, the other ten, right? The other ten are literally taking the role of witnesses when they tell Thomas, Jesus appeared to us, we saw him with our own eyes. And guess what Thomas is not willing to do? He's not willing to accept their witness that Jesus had appeared to, him, to them. And so he says, I don't believe y'all. I'm not going to believe that unless I see Jesus with my own eyes. If I can look and see the, the holes in his hands, and I can stick my finger through the holes in his hands, and I'll check his side, you know, he got stuck with a spear. If I can stick my hand in that hole where, where the spear went, and then I'll know, then I'll believe. Okay? Eight days later, verse 26 says, His disciples were within, and Thomas was with them this time. He was there also this time. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And now he turns to Thomas. Okay, just get the impact of it. I, I tell you, I, the more I read this, the more I get out of it. Because immediately, Jesus turns his attention to Thomas. And it's not just about Thomas. We're going to see that it's about us also. Because if we do what Thomas did, we're not going to heaven. We will not make it to heaven if we are like Thomas. And Jesus is going to address Thomas and in verse 27, he says to him, Reach hither thy finger, and behold, man, you wanted to see my hands? Here they are. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. You want it here, stick it in there, if that's what it takes for you. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas's answer is, My Lord and my God. He believed because he saw, because Jesus did all of those things that he said to him. He became a believer. He saw with his own eyes. Thomas becomes an eyewitness, right? Now, I said we're not going to make it to heaven if we're like Thomas. Try to follow me. We'll get a little deep here, okay? It's not because Thomas was a bad guy. And so if we're like Thomas, we're not going to make it to heaven. It's because Thomas wouldn't believe witnesses. In order for Thomas to believe, Thomas says, I've got to see him in, in, in person with my own eyes. 
We don't have that option. We don't have that option. Jesus is ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling as the king over his church right now. He's not leaving heaven for me to see him like Thomas demanded. That's not going to happen. I don't have the option of demanding that from him. If I am going to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, there's only one way that's going to happen. And for you also, there's only one way it's going to happen. It's because Jesus left witnesses and we believe the witnesses. That's the only way we're going to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is different than what Thomas and the other apostles had at their disposal or their opportunity to see Jesus. And Jesus understands that. Look in verse 29. It says, Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen, you, you have believed. But guess what? There is a whole world from now to the end of the world of generations and generations of people that aren't going to get to do that. They're going to have to believe because of your witness, Thomas, and of the other apostles. And so Jesus says, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. If I believe Jesus was raised from the dead, it's because I believe the witnesses that he left. Well, no, I believe the Bible. Guess who wrote the Bible? The witnesses. They're who wrote the Bible. That is the only reason that we believe Jesus is the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead. And that's okay because that's why Jesus created the witnesses by appearing to them and left them and their writings and guards over their writings so I will always have that chance to listen to the witnesses and to decide whether I believe them or not. But can we see how important the witnesses are? They are the basis of my faith in Jesus. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to ask ourselves, are they believable? I mean, what kind of witnesses did Jesus leave behind? Do they give us enough evidence when they tell me that Jesus was raised from the dead and they saw him with their own eyes that I can believe what they say? Okay, now I'll ask a question. Don't throw out any names, okay? Just don't speak anybody's name. But have you ever known somebody you just really couldn't ever believe what they were saying? Don't say names, okay? Most of us have. Most of us have, most of us have known people that after a few times you realize you just you don't know what you don't know if you can believe them or not. That's not a good witness. You don't know whether to believe them or not. They're not credible. So are the witnesses that Jesus left behind are they credible? Now they claim absolutely to be witnesses of the risen Christ. Look in Acts chapter 5. And some of these verses, you're going to, we hit them again and again because there's different points in them. But in Acts chapter 5, 
beginning with verse 27. It says, When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. The apostles understood their role. We are his witnesses of these things. Mainly that God did raise him up. Jesus was raised from the dead. The reason his grave was found empty is because he's not dead anymore. But he is alive again. Okay? So, when we think about these witnesses, should I believe them? Because what they're saying is big stuff. I mean, it, it really has, as Bob said, great impact on our life as to the kind of lives we're going to lead. And in fact, remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, we read one of those passages where he says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, now this is Texas paraphrase, but we might as well pack it up and go home because it's all a waste of time anyway. So it is, it is a big, big thing for us to decide whether we can believe them. So let's talk about these appearances as Jesus appeared to the apostles and the disciples back then. To begin with, we, we already read in 1 Corinthians where Paul mentions a bunch of different situations where, where Jesus appeared to people. And as you, actually, the other night I was going to read all those, we didn't have time but all those passages that were just some of the times that Jesus appeared to people during those 40 days. And what you find is there, a lot, there was a great variety of the people that he appeared to. Some was the apostles, some were family members, some were just disciples that, that he appeared to. There was a lot of different kinds of people in different places. Sometimes it was in Jerusalem, upper room. Sometimes it was outside of Jerusalem with people traveling. He went to Galilee and appeared to them there. There was a lot of different places Jesus appeared to, to those disciples. And one of the things that, that we need to keep in mind is that it was always people that knew him. He did not appear to people that didn't know who he was. He appeared to disciples. In other words, these were people that were able to say, I knew him before he got killed. I'm able to say, yep, this is Jesus. This, it really was the real person Jesus that appeared to alive after he had been crucified. They all knew him. In fact, you remember when they were choosing Matthias, to replace Judas and take his place as an apostle, one of the qualifications was that he had to have been one of the men who had traveled around with them before that. You can read that in Acts chapter 1. And one who had, been a, who had seen Jesus alive after he had been dead because 
fact, just go to Acts 1. The wording is that he had to be a witness. Verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John under that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Okay, he's taught, when he says us, that's the apostles. And he says, there's an open spot here. Judas is gone. His place needs to, to be filled. And that person has to have known Jesus, has to have traveled with us, the verse before that says, because he is going to join us in our job of being witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? So these were people who knew Jesus. They're not going to make a mistake in, well, he kind of looks like him. He kind of talks like he did, about the same height. That they know who Jesus is. And when they see him again, they know that it is Jesus and that he's been raised from the dead. Let me point out another thing about these appearances. Acts 1, verse 3, we've already seen several times, tells they happened for 40 days. 40 days. They, they didn't happen before that. 40 days of appearances, he ascends to heaven, and they're done. No more appearances. Except when there's another time for another apostle, for one born out of due season, which is the apostle Paul. And he tells us about that. But the appearances were for a definite period of time, 40 days, for a definite purpose to create disciples who could be his witnesses that he was alive after he had been killed. And once the witnesses are created, the job is done, the appearances are over. I, I think when you think about that, that has a lot of meaning to that. It's not just random. There was a very purposeful thing going on. Jesus was making witnesses for us to be able to consider and to listen to. All right, let's read some verses together. Now, <clears throat> a very strong point to consider about whether you can believe a witness or not is do they really want to be a part of that and they're just looking for attention and everything? Or is it kind of against their will? And what we're going to find as we read some of these passages is that the witnesses of Jesus became witnesses really against their will, okay? Now, some people, if you read some of the books about this by skeptics and atheists, they'll tell you that, oh, there was kind of a plot and a plan that Jesus told the people, now, if they kill me, after they kill me, you know, tell everybody, y'all go tell them I was raised from the dead, and even though you, that's not going to happen, but you tell them I was raised from the dead. And kind of like this secretive plan and that they were building some false religion or whatever. I heard all kinds of things like that. In other words, that the apostles, what we know as the apostles, they had a plan to kind of do something sneaky and behind the scenes and lie about it before it ever happened because they were going to build something they were going to be a part of. That is not the way this reads. To begin with, we read several passages last night to where they didn't even get when Jesus said, on the third day I'm going to be raised from the dead. They couldn't get that. They just, they just didn't compute with them about somebody coming back from the dead. Read some of those with me again. Look in uh, Mark chapter 9. 
Mark chapter 9, in verses 9 and 10, it says, As they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what they had seen, till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. It says they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. Well, you know, if, somebody, if I was to say somebody was raised from the dead, would you, you don't have any trouble to understand that, right? Might not believe it, but you know what that means. They couldn't figure it out. Surely he's not talking about somebody being raised from the dead. Later in that same chapter, verse 30. It says that as they departed thence and passed through Galilee, he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now look at verse 32. But they understood not that saying, and they were afraid to ask him, what do you mean by that? They were afraid to ask him about it. They could not. He said, I will be raised on the third day after they kill me. And they couldn't figure that out. It doesn't sound like a, a really smooth plan going on here, does it, with them being involved. Look in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 31. Actually, verse, just go down to verse 33. It says, Jesus says, They shall scourge him, shall put him to death, and the third day shall he rise again. And verse 34 says, And they understood none of these things. If, if there was somebody in on a being raised on the third day of the week, a third day plot, the disciples weren't in on it. They could not figure out what he was talking about, even though it was plain language. And obviously it's because they couldn't imagine somebody being raised from the dead. Okay? Even after he was raised from the dead, they were not predisposed to believe that that was going to happen. Read some others with me. Look over in Mark chapter 16. Okay, Mark chapter 16. It was really hard to convince them that he had been raised from the dead even after it had happened. In Mark chapter 16, beginning with verse 9, well, get the right book, that helps. Okay, Mark chapter 16, verse 9, it says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. So he appears to Mary Magdalene, and she runs to tell the apostles. And verse 11 it says, and, when, and they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. She runs to him and says, he's alive, I've seen him. And they didn't believe her. This is the apostles. Our witnesses we're going to have later on. They did not believe that she had actually seen him raised from the dead. Look in uh, verse 12. And after that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the residue, the rest of the disciples, and neither believed they them. He appears to some others, and they run and tell the disciples that they have seen Jesus' life, and they won't believe them either. 
In fact, their attitude, it was so hard to convince them. Read verse 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and he upbraided them. We would say he chewed them out. For what? Because of their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Now you read that. Does that sound like somebody who is expecting Jesus to actually be raised from the dead? Absolutely not. Does it sound like somebody who's making up a story so they can be a part of some grand thing called the Lord's church? No, absolutely not. They are not on board with that. They are refusing to believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. In Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, You read where the, the, the women come to the grave. The angel tells them Jesus is not here in verse 6. He's been raised from the dead. Uh, it says in verse 9 that they returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles. And listen to verse 11. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. So how predisposed were what we know later to be the apostles, how predisposed were they to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? They were not. It was against their will. They did not even want to believe it, much less actually believe it. Okay? In verse 11, it says it's like idle tale. They thought the women were just making it up, just making it up a story, like, like something that happened and they're kind of not thinking straight. So later on, you read about Thomas in John chapter 20. And remember what Thomas said? Thomas is one of the apostles. And Thomas says, I, I'm not going to believe unless I see him. There's no way. I will not. He's got... Ten people telling him we saw Jesus and Thomas is not believing them. So what changed? Go back to Acts chapter 1. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Let's see again what changed. All these doubting people. Listen, Thomas wasn't the only doubter. He gets a little kind of bad credit for being called Doubting Thomas. They were all doubters. What changed to where these men who were pretty much refusing to even hear about Jesus being raised from the dead, what changed? Well, Acts 1-3 says, To whom he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. After he was dead, eventually they had Jesus appear to them, every one of them. And they were given infallible proof. Pick up on that word infallible. Okay? Because when, when 10 of your friends that you trust, you know they're not liars, when they tell you they've seen Jesus, that's kind of proof, right? That's kind of proof. 
But they were now given infallible proof. What is infallible proof? It's like what Thomas got when Jesus appears face to face to him, looks him in the eye and says, Thomas, look at the holes in my hands. Stick your finger through them. Here's the hole in my side. Stick your hand in there and get over this not believing stuff. I have been raised from the dead. In person I show you this. That's infallible proof. And that's what the apostles got. And that's why they went from being doubters to believers. Okay? So that's a big point for you when you're considering the witnesses. They were convinced against their will. All right? Now, let's step to the side a little bit, off to a little different subject. <clears throat> when you read through some books of skeptics and things, they're going to tell you that these men were kind of crazy. These disciples were kind of off a little bit. They were so racked by grief and sorrow that they weren't thinking straight. And they literally drove themselves kind of crazy and they began having hallucinations. This is a real popular one among unbelievers. That they were all hallucinating when they saw Jesus in these supposed appearances that he made to them. So let's talk about that. Were they hallucinations or were they real appearances by the risen Jesus? Now, we need to talk about hallucinations a little bit to begin with. Now, hallucinations or when you imagine something happening. You imagine you see something that's not real. It's not there. Okay? But a hallucination is something that happens within the person. It is subjective, not objective. It's not like they're seeing something actually that's there and they just don't get what it is. It, there's nothing there. A hallucination is all inside all in the mind. I remember we had a patient one, one time and he had a disease that had just pretty much, it was a horrible disease that pretty much fried his brain. It was just so strange and weird. And one night I came to work, well he's sitting there by the nurse's station in a chair and his room is right there across the hallway. And I said, well, why don't you go in your room? So, so he said, are you kidding me? You'll burn up in there. Well, I'm thinking, okay, well, let me turn the thermostat down for you. He, no, there, there's a fire in it. Can't you see the fire? And I look in there, there's no fire in this room. He said, that's an inferno in there. He said, I'm not going in there. I'm not going to get burned. You want to get burned alive? You go on in there. And I'm like, look, there's no fire. He thinks there's this raging fire going on in his, in his room there. So he spent the rest of the night at the nurse's station. <laughs> but it, that's a hallucination. When inside, see that was all inside his mind, nothing outside, all inside. That's an important point. Because when, when we read of the appearances of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says that one time he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Think about that. He appeared to 500 people at the same time. And they all say they saw Jesus raised from the dead in person. Were they hallucinating? Scientifically, there's no way. Because hallucinations are all inside. 
Were they all having the same messed up mind, hallucinating inside at the same time, and all sharing the same exact hallucination at the same time? I can guarantee you the answer is no. It's scientifically impossible. They might have all been hallucinating, which is really far-fetched, but they're not going to all have within themselves, within their own mind, the same kind of way their mind is messed up, all at exactly the same time. They're not going to all have the same hallucination together at the same time. It is scientifically impossible, medically impossible. So what's the answer then? The answer is it wasn't subjective. It was not within their mind. It was outside, and it was real. What happened was Jesus appeared to all 500 of them at the same time, and they all saw him at the same time. Don't, don't get lost in some of these silly things, accusations that people say. They weren't hallucinating. They weren't crazy. They know what they saw on those occasions. Okay? Yeah, let's talk about one other thing. And all this is for you to see and understand. Jesus created credible witnesses. You have every reason to believe these people when they tell you they saw Jesus alive after he was dead. When they tell us, I am an eyewitness. I saw him with my own eyes. You have every, if, if you don't believe these witnesses, Forget anything about court and witnesses. You should never believe anybody else about anything. Okay? These are the best witnesses you could ever have for anything. They are eyewitnesses with every reason to tell the truth. The last point I would make, ask you is, have you ever noticed the, the huge change that took place in these people? For example, look at Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, there in verse 50, 56, it's talking about when Jesus has been arrested, he's about to go to trial. And it says in verse 56, but all this was done that the scriptures might be, of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They were all scared to death. They just ran away and left Jesus with them so that they, nothing would happen to them. Look in Luke 22. Now there's a whole sermon on this passage. I'm not going to give it to you tonight, obviously. But this is one to really consider and think about. In Luke chapter 22, it says in verse 54, Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. So as this bunch of leading Jesus into the high priest, Peter's kind of tagging along behind in the crowd, just a, a little far off, but, but where he can see what's going on. And it says, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. And he denied him saying, woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, thou art also of him. And Peter said, no, I'm not. 
and about the space of one hour, another confidently affirms it, of a truth this fellow was with him, for he's, from, he's a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I know not what you're saying. And immediately while he was yet spake, the cock crew. Oh, by the way, do you remember when Jesus told Peter, who said, I will always be your dedicated father, I'll never abandon you. And Jesus said, listen, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And Peter, oh, no, no, not me. Maybe them, but not me. In verse 61, it says, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Out of all the stuff Peter, that Jesus had going on right there, remember it was a pretty bad spot for him. I don't know how far Peter was away from him, but he wasn't far enough that Jesus couldn't see him. They were with an eyesight. And Jesus knew what was going on out over there on the edge of the crowd. And when he denied him the third time, Jesus turned and just looked at him. Okay. Get Bob to preach your sermon on the rest of that. It's really good. But my point is to you, look how scared he is. He's scared even to admit that he knows Jesus. And the rest of the disciples were the same way. Now, let me show you a different situation with these same people and the way they were later. Look over in Acts chapter 3. A huge change takes place in them. In Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 11, and it says, As the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto him in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering what had happened. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Why, or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just, and you desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and you killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised up from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Can you hear the power in that? Where before they were running scared, now he is talking to some of the very ones involved in having Jesus killed, and he says, you are murderers. You killed the prince of life. You could have you killed an actual murderer, but you let him go, and you killed a totally innocent man, Jesus, the Prince of Life. That's boldness. That's courage. That's not being scared anymore. Look in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. It says, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, you rulers of the people and the elders of Israel, if, this, if we this day be examined of the good deed unto the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all. Let us tell you, we'll answer you a question. 
You want to know how this happened? Let me tell you how it happened. Be it known unto y'all that to you all that to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. He is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He is the one you rejected, and God made him the cornerstone anyway, whether you like it or not. That's what he's telling them. And then the next verse says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Do you hear the courage in that? Do you hear the power of that kind of statement? Saying it to who he was saying it to? The killers of Jesus. And then you have chapter 5. Chapter 5 there in verse 27. Where they put him before the council and they said, Didn't we tell you not to teach in, in this man's name? And in verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. To their face, he said, we, will not, we will not obey you. We will obey God first. These are, this is being said to people who will kill them. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to listen to God. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. They went from being scared to death to being in the face of the killers of Jesus. And telling them off, we would say. What happened? Well, what happened was what happened in between those occasions, which is Jesus was raised from the dead, and he appeared to them, and they knew he was the Son of God. They knew he was the Messiah. They knew he was raised from the dead, and all that that means. Remember when I said in the beginning that when you really get that, it gives us so much power inside ourselves as Christians. That's what I was talking about. That's what it did for the apostles. Okay, now listen. These people were willing to die. And, and most of them did die because of the witness that they gave, that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Why would they do that? Because they knew it was true. Now, I'm going to make a couple of statements. I want you to get the wording here. People don't die for a lie that they know is a lie. Okay, so what does that mean? What it means is a liar, when he gets caught, he'll hold out as long as he can, but he knows it's a lie. He knows whatever his premise is, it's a lie. He's going to die for that if he hangs on to it, but he knows it's a lie. He will give it up eventually. He's not going to die for what he knows is a lie. Now, there are other people, and there's been a lot of people in time, 
that died for a lie, they just didn't realize it was a lie. They were deceived. Somebody had deceived them, David Koresh and Waco, and all the bunch that died with him. That's a good example. He was a liar, and he lied to them, but they believed him. They did not know they were dying for a lie, so they, were, they stuck with him, and they died for it. But people who know the lie is a lie, they will not, they will not stick with it to, to death because they know they're dying for nothing. These men stayed with their witness even to the point that they were killed for it. Why did they do that? Because they knew it wasn't a lie. They knew. They were eyewitnesses. Listen, the fact that they died for this should, should carry a lot of meaning for us. Because if anybody would know they were lying when they said, I saw him with my own eyes, it would be them. They would know whether that was true or not. And they died for that witness. I don't know how much, how much more credible they could be when they tell us they saw Jesus raised from the dead. Okay, let me give you a couple of other passages. In Acts chapter 26, I encourage you to read verses 21 through 23. I'm going to do it tonight. But let me just tell you what's there. The Apostle Paul has been arrested. He's on his way, going to end up in Rome to be tried in front of Caesar. But he gets a chance to give his answer to King Agrippa. He's been accused by the Jews of, of a lot of bad things. And, and in chapter 26, Agrippa says, Paul, I'm going to let you talk for yourself. You, you give an answer to all this stuff you're being accused of. And Acts chapter 26 is one of the passages Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts chapter 26, who have, an, who have accounts of the, the conversion of Paul, of Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus and then going on into Damascus. They, each one of them gives a few details, the other one doesn't, but basically there's three times, twice being told by Paul in Acts 9, his conversion is being told about by Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. So Paul goes into an accounting of his conversion what happened on the road to Damascus, how the Lord appeared to him. And, and the way he frames this is he starts out telling what he was like before that. And we all know what he was like before that, right? He was Saul of Tarsus. He was killing Christians in Jerusalem, and when he didn't, couldn't find enough to kill in Jerusalem, he got letters from the elders to go to Damascus to be able to find, hunt down Christians and murder them there. That's the kind of person he was before. And then he says, while I was on the way to Damascus, the Lord appeared to me. And he tells the story of what Jesus said and what happened then. And then he talks about from that time on, verse 19, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What was the heavenly vision? Jesus appeared to him and talked to him. And he said, from that point on, I have gone about teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead because I saw the risen Christ raised from the dead. And this is why I'm a prisoner. This is why the Jews don't like me. And if you think about 
Paul in the beginning is telling one kind of person he was, completely against Christ and Christians. Now, at the end of it, completely different person, completely for Christ, going to die for him if he has to, and for Christians. And as you read that, the point that Paul is making to Agrippa is, there is not, there's only one explanation as to why I would do that. There's only one explanation of why this great change would have happened in my life. I gained nothing from it physically. I gained nothing from it of a worldly nature. I lost my fame. I lost my power. I lost my reputation among the Jews. I lost everything I have of this world. Because of this change that took place in my life. And there's only one explanation that you can get out of that. And that is, when I tell you I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he's alive because he was raised from the dead. And Paul died for that witness. Okay? Now, we, I am, and you are completely dependent. Now, get that. I'm not overstating that. We are completely dependent on these witnesses we've been talking about. Are they credible? Are they believable? They are. I mean, if, how could you get better witnesses than what we've talked about? How could Jesus have created a better witnessing for us than what he did with these men? And so the answer is this. If they are believable, guess what we should do? We should believe, right? Well, that's sensible, right? If they are believable... We should believe them when they tell us they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And there's something that comes out of that. Number one, you don't have to doubt whether Jesus was raised. You have all the evidence in the world that you would ever possibly need. In fact, in the end of John for chapter 20, he said, look, there's a lot of other things that Jesus did that we didn't even write down in the book, but these are given and recorded for you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We have all the evidence that we need. And there is a reaction that we should have after looking at that. And it is the reaction of Thomas, who was no longer doubting but when he felt Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. And from that moment, Thomas was a true believer. And he too gave his life for that. Okay, we're talking about they all died for it. So I would ask you, would you die for Jesus? I mean, really, would you die for Jesus? You know, that, that, that used to be kind of a far-fetched question. It's not getting as far-fetched anymore as what it was years ago. But let me ask you something. Would you die for Jesus? Are these witnesses good enough, and you see them dying for their testimony, would you die for their testimony? 
It's kind of a hard question to answer, isn't it? Well, let me give you a place to begin. Go to a different question. Would you live for Jesus? If you want to know if you would die for Jesus, ask yourself, do I live for Jesus? That'll pretty close, get pretty close to giving you the answer. If you're not willing to listen to him, obey him in becoming a Christian when he says you need to repent, be baptized for the mission of your sins, and all those passages that talk about the plan of salvation. If you're not willing to do that, I pretty much assure you, you're not gonna, if you don't live for him, you're not going to die for him either. If you're not willing to change your life and live the way he wants you to live, be a disciple. You know what the word disciple means? It means follower. It means you follow what he says. If you're not willing to do that and live for him, you're not going to die for him. You know who you're going to die for? You. And you're not going to like how that ends up. Because it doesn't end up in heaven. Be like Thomas. Look at the evidence. Realize, my Lord and my God. And listen to him. Become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. And let him get you to heaven. You know what the Savior said about you being saved? He said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you haven't done that, we can help you. Come and let us know. Let together we stand and while we sing.